0: All right, continuing our discussion around the border, borders, I guess. Um, uh, The latest, just hearing in the news, uh, it looks like the Coots situation has been resolved. Uh, Most of the people left uh, over the course of the past 24 hours, and the remainder, those who uh, stayed overnight and into this morning, left at about 10 o'clock. There was a convoy that sort of left. So traffic resumed at Coots, As you know, traffic resumed in Windsor. Uh, over the weekend. There were on and off tie-ups at the border crossing in Surrey, BC. That was dealt with last night. RCMP moved in and made a number of arrests, the people who wouldn't leave. They went in and said, hey, listen, guys, this is over. You can leave or you can be arrested. Most people left. There was 50 or 60. Most of them said, okay, we'll leave. Uh, 10 or 12 didn't, and they were arrested. So traffic flowing freely in Surrey, Coots Windsor, looks like things are back on track. But now what remains to be done is to total up the damage. What's this going to cost us? Because you can't shut down borders like that for as long as we did uh, and not have it cause major implications in our supply chains and our economy and all the rest of that stuff. So uh, it's going to cost all of us. That's the bottom line. So let's get some details on just how much it might and in what areas. We're going to chat with Moshe Lander, who's an economist and our senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Mr. Lander, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. So we're talking about two of the busiest crossings. In fact, one of them for sure, the busiest crossing in North America being shut down for as long as it was. There will be a financial price to pay for all of this, right?
1: For sure. Uh, the The Ambassador Bridge which connects Windsor and Detroit, probably does give or take around a billion dollars worth of goods passing across the border each day. So for each day that that's closed, you know, just multiply a billion dollars times that amount. and, And beyond that, it's integrating the American auto industry with the Canadian auto industry, which exists on a highway that runs basically continuously from Windsor all the way up to the Quebec border near Cornwall. So it's not just the, the goods themselves, but it's the lost business that you really can't make back, right?
0: Yeah, we saw that. A number of automotive plants either scaling back the number of shifts or closing altogether. How does that work? I mean, is it Ford on one side does this, and then they need the part from Ford on the other side to complete? The- I mean, how does that all get integrated?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So, you know, one factory will start producing a certain part of the components, and then they'll pass it across the the bridge onto the Detroit side. And then in the factories in and around Michigan, they'll develop it further and send it back. And so it can pass the border multiple times in creating the ultimate final product. Even if you have one factory that's making the entire car from beginning to end, there still is that uh, parts that are going to be fed into that production process. So even if it's not like a half-finished chassis, the fact is that they're going to need a continuous supply of parts that might be coming from part suppliers down even into Ohio And so, when the borders closed, those cars just sit there unfinished uh, and and unable to go further. uh, Eventually, they get made, but it just delays all of the subsequent production that would have been done in that time.
0: Makes perfect sense. Okay, what other goods uh, might we see be affected here? I mean, what are some of the major players coming across that
1: border? So uh, across there, you're talking about a lot of the manufacturers, right? Because Ontario really is the heart of Canada's manufacturing sector. And so any of those factories that are relying on parts coming up through the U.S., and that itself might be parts that are coming from China, mm-hmm. but maybe are shipped to, say, Los Angeles and then, uh, you know, trucked across the country, those are going to be affected. The the Coots border and, and the, the western side of the borders, uh, they're going to be dealing in more, say, uh, agricultural products. They're going to be dealing in, of course, cattle and uh, meat products, and and a lot of, uh, you know, perishable goods that aren't going to be able to last particularly long because they can't be stored.
0: Yeah, I mean, with coots being closed as long as it was, and I, I don't know if what the situation was, but some of those perishables, livestock things that you're talking about, if those were lost eh, as, as these trucks had to divert to other locations or had to sit and wait, I mean, that money will have to be made up. Is that a factor here?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, that that's going to hit the profits of, you know, say your grocery stores, right? So Safeway is going to say, look, it's not just because we didn't get this shipment. You as a consumer can double up this week and just buy two of them, right? So if those perishable goods didn't come across, then they're gone. And so that's going to either reduce their profits, which is one option, or if they want to maintain their profits, they're going to try and pass across some of that lost revenue by increasing prices on existing products that are either on the shelves or subsequently on the shelves, which could trigger even higher inflation than we've been seeing in the last
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're at a time where we don't have a lot of margin here. I mean, inflation is higher than it's been in decades. We know the supply chain's been an issue. This really did hit at the worst possible time, you know, in terms of economics.
1: It is. It's the perfect confluence of like three bad events all occurring at the same time. COVID continues into, I guess now it's third year. Uh, of causing problems. And of course, in Alberta, you know, remember a few weeks back, the minus 40, minus 50 days that's causing disruption. BC saw flooding that wiped out some of their highways and infrastructure. Uh, And so, you know, that's also causing problems. And then just generally across the world, we're constantly hearing about supply chain issues. And so getting goods from the factory floor in China onto shelves in Canadian stores is itself a problem. Uh, And so those three are all working together to jack up prices for whatever does make it to the shelf.
0: So in regards to this incident in particular, the border situation that we've been dealing with in our country, what's the uh, the timeline on how long that kind of impact takes to be absorbed and to get back to normal? How long will it, f- it affect things?
1: So the immediate impact is going to be seen probably within the next 30 days, right? So uh, we're going to see in March the February inflation numbers, and there's going to be a jump, right? The, the fact is that Those protests didn't just last 24 hours, so a week is long enough in economics to do some damage. Uh, It's really then just a matter of how fast can we get back to something resembling normal, right? So even though you've gotten rid of the protesters and they've been pushed away from the border, that doesn't necessarily mean that the border is now fully open again. Uh, You know, I'm sure there's going to be some hesitancy on both sides of the border in terms of allowing trucks back into the country that you have to be a little more... um, Vigilant in checking to make sure that this isn't the start of some subsequent protest, and so that type of gumming things up could now drift into the spring and maybe into the summer, depending on how fast people kind of calm down and say, "All right, that was a one-off," yeah. as opposed to this is the beginning of something more more regular.
0: So, when we take a look at what might happen and what we can expect to see, we already know interest rate hikes are fully expected. I mean, we've basically been told as much by the Bank of Canada. How does this change the way that governments and the bank, central banks, respond to the situation that we're dealing
1: with? So the Bank of Canada is committed to keeping inflation at 1% to 3% a year, and and we've been above that for some time now. But the Bank of Canada has been kind of holding off increasing interest rates because they wanted to see in part the supply chains kind of correct themselves And if the inflation rate doesn't go substantially above three, they're willing to look the other way just to kind of help keep the economy humming. Uh, They've been pushing back that interest rate hike for over a year now, but I I think it's at the point where they say it's just too high and it's too damaging that we can't let it go any longer. And so those rate hikes are probably going to come pretty fast and furious in a series of, say, four out of the next five meetings, uh, four out of the next six meetings. So you could easily find by the fall Interest rates are full one percentage point higher than they are now. Wow.
0: Okay, that's significant.
1: It is, especially when we're talking about the key overnight rate that the the Bank of Canada controls is at point two five percent. Yeah. So jacking it up to one point two five is pretty substantial. Now, by historical standards, it's not high at all. But given what we've gotten used to after the last five years, even uh, that, that's a big increase coming in a very short amount of time.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, Moshe, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. That is Moshe Lander, who is an economist and a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University.